the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. I am James Miller, journalist, author, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. It's mammoth. And for this episode, I called in to help me in my quest, Jonathan Isaby, editor of Brexit Central, the pro-Brexit news website set up in the aftermath of the EU referendum. I talked to him about what it all means, where it's all going, and Brexit Central's role in that. And I traded in Professor Anand Menon this week and replaced him with another expert from the UK in a changing Europe roster. This time it's Simon Usherwood, reader in politics at the University of Surrey, expert on Euroscepticism, and as you'll hear, podcaster in his own right. I will be back at the end of this podcast with all the uh, interesting housekeeping gubbins, which is really interesting. Last time I confessed to being sick on a helicopter in Singapore. Who knows what you might hear if you stay till the end of the podcast to hear my uh, closing bit. Anyway, in the meantime, we will uh, get on with the conversation between me and Jonathan and Simon, and I started it by giving away some of my best journalistic research secrets. I googled everything I wanted to know about Jonathan Isabey and found uh, the piece you wrote for uh, Con Home saying, you know, that you would, with Brexit Central, you'd be trying to hold the government to account to carry out the instructions they were given by the electorate at the referendum. And the obvious question is, what are those instructions? I think it was pretty clear. I think that the, the Vote Leave campaign put the message across that a Leave vote was about taking back control, taking back control of our laws, our money, our borders and our trade policy. I think those are probably the, the four key things there, uh, which means taking back control of our laws, no longer being subject to the ECJ, taking back control of our money, no longer pouring in billions upon billions into the EU budget to be sloshed around uh, Brussels and distributed as they wish. Uh, taking back control of our borders clearly means the ability to control immigration numbers, not stop immigration, by the way, but needed to, con to control it. Uh, and finally, of our take back control of our trade policy, uh, which obviously means coming outside the customs union and being able to negotiate our own trade deals with countries around the world. And I think all of those continuity remainers who basically didn't like the referendum result are, are pushing various strands of Oh, we should stay in the customs union, we should stay in the single market, uh, you know, either of which would not pass those tests, which I have just put there, because it would not allow us to have control of one or several of those things. Um, I mean, you know, the obvious response to that is, of course, these instructions were not on the ballot paper. Um, you, you know, you say you wanted, it was about taking back control of immigration. Immigration was not on the ballot paper. So how do we know the, the precise instructions that people did give the government? It was pretty clear from all the debates that happened during the referendum, and goodness knows there were hours upon hours of TV and radio debates about these things, where both sides, you know, dare I say it, the Remainers in particular said, if we leave, that means you're outside the single market. 
which means that we will have control of our borders because we will no longer be subject to the four freedoms, which obviously include freedom of movement. So that control of borders was, was fundamentally part of that, you know, as indeed was trade policy. Throughout the referendum debate, there, were, there was talk of the kind of trade deals that we would forge with other countries after we leave the European Union, which clearly we can't do if we're still part of the customs union. Um, I mean, you talk about taking back control of money. I mean, we did control our money. We decided, or you know, the government decided, however you want to phrase it, well, uh, no, no, how no. much to pay to the EU. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> we went and negotiated. No, well, no, no. I mean, the, 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 the European Union uh, sets a budget, which we are then subject to, to have to obey. Okay. And, you know, hence, you know, what is it, £9 billion net a year uh, is leaving these shores. Far more is leaving it. Yes, we're getting a bit back, but we don't have control over that because it's various aspects of the, the European Commission which are deploying that, those funds where they see fit. But we did, we did go and negotiate that budget, for example. I mean, you know, obviously Cameron and Osborne famously went and negotiated. Uh, you know, they said it should stay level and there was a big negotiation around and they reckoned they'd won that negotiation. So there was a, it wasn't, the EU didn't in, impose this budget, surely. Well, I, I think most British people have been deeply concerned about the amount of money net that is flowing to the European Union from the UK. And there has been no, I think, I think only one year since 1972 have we been a net recipient. And I think that was 1975, which was the, the year that <laughs> there was the first referendum, uh, funnily enough. This issue of instructions, Simon, uh, does that ring true to you that it was the instructions were clear i mean it sounds uh, entirely reasonable uh, the way jonathan puts it but obviously there's a lot of squabbling at the moment over exactly what those instructions were yes and it would have been the same actually if we'd had a, a vote to remain that the, the instructions were no more or less ambiguous on the the remain side than they were on the leave side i, I Johnston sets out a, a clear view of what the instructions were, and you can certainly find that line, of, that kind of grouping of the arguments that there were in the Leave campaign. But you can also find very different arguments. Um, Boris Johnson has said different things about yeah. single market membership at mm. different points in the campaign and since. Um, and again, I think you know one of the things that you, you, you really see since the referendum has been lots of different people trying to claim the result, saying this is what it meant and mm. this is what we, we've done. And whether that's uh, Theresa May or whether it's uh, interest groups or parties or sections of the media, everyone's got a different take. And, uh, I, you know, in a, in a purely legal sense, there was only the question on the, the ballot paper, which was about membership of the EU. Um, I, I, you can make the argument that vote leave as the official... Uh, campaign had a, a program of action, um, but then that's di it's different from a general election. I think one yeah. of the difficulties we got here is that sometimes we treat this like it was a general election and we were bringing in a, a new government, which we weren't. Um, so you could make promises that well, you kind of got it as a free bonus. Yeah, <laughs> we did get it. <laughs> so, bonus. That, that's an interesting choice of I'm word. But, as a bonus, we'll but come on to that in a tick. Yeah. So <laughs> again, you know, the, the, but there's no automatic link. There's not the kind of ring fencing of a, a manifesto commitment sure. in the way that there is in, a, yeah. in an election. So, you know, I think. It, but then I, since, but then since. The referendum we have had a general election we have. and if you look at the manifestos of both the conservative and labor parties they were pretty damn clear about what brexit means and again it means 
negotiating your own trade policy, mm. coming out of the single market, an end to uncontrolled EU migration. So, you know, frankly, the, the general election result underlined all those points. I'm so they sure. really shouldn't be in doubt. I'm not sure the Labour manifesto was clear. I'm not sure it was clear about much, to be honest. Well, <laughs> the Labour man- no, the Labour manifesto was clear. Well, all right, it was. An end, it's just it, that there all the Labour an, politicians were saying different things. No, it's the Labour manifesto said there'd be an end to free movement on leaving the European Union, yeah. which means we have to leave the single market because that's an absolutely uh, fundamental part of being in the single market, that you have that free movement. Similarly, the Labour manifesto talked about the kind of trade policies we'd negotiate, uh, trade agreements we'd negotiate going forward, which, again, you can't do if you're in the customs union. So the, the fundamentals were absolutely there. You mentioned legal terms, Simon. Uh, it's a fact that referendums are, uh, to use a legal term, rubbish, because it's like because you don't know what's on the, the well the problematic the ballot paper. Uh, they are they're always problematic because unless you have a strong culture in the political system of using mm. referenda or referendums oh well yeah uh, uh, now someone like Switzerland you've got regular mm. votes where people are used to the what that means the questions tend to be much more narrowly defined and limited much clearer representation about what the different options mean mm. you, you explain what this vote means and what that vote means um, in those kind of contexts yes referendums can work well uh, but in a system like the UK where we haven't really had much experience of doing it mm. uh, you run the risk that you end up with a question that is not what people vote you know people voted for a lot of different reasons you know part of what motivated people was, uh, you know, dislike of David Cameron and yes. you know, the dislike of the government, which was part of it. And that's fine. You know, that's democracy. You know, we can't mm. say you might, can only vote and we'll check if you're voting for the right reason. So you have that, that kind of problem. I think the real problem, again, was that on neither side did you have a, a specific set of commitments yeah. to which everyone would be bound. And also that gap between what the people say and then what parliament does you know the whole sort of legal challenges we had last uh, autumn you know kind of creates a gap so again there's the people have spoken but what have they said talking and editing talking and editing so do you think it's going well right now yes i think so do you think it'll turn out well i'm very confident it will turn out well talking and editing talking and editing there's been a very cosy consensus amongst the British political elite in favour of this project, which there wasn't actually consent for, because you know, if you go back to the, the 75 referendum, what people voted for then was very different to what the European Union has turned out to be. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose I would... Uh, I, I hear what you, you say, absolutely, yes, but surely there was always accountability in the sense that we had elections... Uh, to the European Parliament, we elected our own politicians, who then would go to Brussels and had the power to veto, but, you know, the European Commission chair, or you know, they all had a say. I appreciate it was a, a step as, removed, for, but, but there was accountability no, no, of sorts. But, but for as long as all those politicians from all the parties were in favour of the European project and vo- voting in favour of each treaty that came through, uh, th- there was absolutely no way in which people opposed to that really could have a voice and i'm mean, obviously UKIP. obviously they well no you, UKIP, well, no, well, you, you, you no, ukip emerged as a force um 
I mean, obviously, they, they got their first representation in the European Parliament in 99. Really, mm. ironically, thanks to Tony Blair changing the electoral yes, system yes. for the European Parliament elections. Mm. Had, had it remained a first-past-the-post system, I think they would have struggled to get people elected, and Nigel Farage would not have become a household yeah. name, and the, the course of history may have been very different. The EU is, is, was designed as a system for building consensus between its member states, mm. which... It does, you know, surprisingly well, given how much member states disagree on uh, areas of policy. But then at the point when you get people who are unhappy about aspects mm. of the system, it's very hard for them to get a, li- a foothold in, in representation or to get a voice or to affect policy. And often what we've seen, and certainly since Maastricht, is that then because you can't complain about a specific thing, you, ha- you have to complain about the whole thing, that the whole edifice looks problematic. Talking and editing, talking and editing. Can either of you explain why does a car door have to go all around Europe to get put together? This doesn't make any sense to me at all. This idea that parts go to France and then Ireland and then come back to Britain. What's that all about? Haven't we got bits? I don't understand this. Can anybody explain? It's because the cost of transport is so cheap and the margins are so thin in the automotive industry, for example, that it actually is cheaper to move a piece across a continent to do a piece of work and then move it most of the way back to do the next bit. That's insane. Then it's cheaper to do that than... It is insane. Like, I, I don't... Surely you just get a big chunk of metal and make a car. I mean, that's basically what goes on, isn't it? Speaking as a journalist. Yeah, I mean, isn't that how you make a car? I mean, can't we just do that in this country? I don't understand why we have to go in and out and in and out. And will that, you know, you know no, change, will that change after, change, after Brexit or will it just get more expensive? will change. Yeah. And they'll change in response to whatever the financial and economic situation, you know, whatever arrangements there are. In some cases, yeah, stuff stuff will just be done locally and won't move around. In other cases, uh, you'll just cut out different bits of the the chain. So, yeah, there there are always different ways of doing it. Um, And somebody's going to benefit from that. Somebody's probably going to lose out from that as well. The question is, who benefits uh, and to what extent? Could I benefit if I set up the British Motor Company? Isn't this a good time to set up a company making cars in Britain? Do it all in Britain. A British larder, if you will. I'll just import big chunks of metal and make cars. Is that, I mean, I'm simplifying it clearly, but is, there, is that a possible outcome from Brexit that you just do more stuff in Britain? You will certainly find that there will be industries, probably not you, no. uh, there will be okay. industries that will benefit from not having as close an economic uh, integration with the rest of the EU. So I think there'll probably be industrial companies, uh, service providers that have not been able to compete okay, against yeah. uh, competition yeah. from the rest of the EU. And at the point that they get some kind of protection or shielding uh, from that, then they will benefit from it. So undoubtedly, there will be economic winners. At Breaks of Central, we've published now our, our second edition of Project Cheer. Which oh, yes pick up online if you go to brexitcentral.com slash project cheer which amongst other things just just lists uh, in fun graphic form lots and lots of uh, companies which are investing more in this country jobs being created in this country you know there is huge optimism uh, across huge swathes of of the business and industrial world about the UK as a good place to do business and that will potentially be an even better place to do business after Brexit. Uh, so 
you know, I, I think the, the UK economy will be a winner, which means everyone will be a winner. Okay, um, let's just... Uh, somewhere a long time ago, you mentioned the media. Are you a journalist? Yes, I am. You're not a campaigner? I know quite a lot of campaigning journalists. Mm-hmm. I, I dare say you might attribute that to me, possibly. Um, where does Brexit Central fit into the media landscape? Um, because you're clearly pushing a particular line. Is that fair to say? I think if you look at every newspaper you read every morning, you will see newspapers sure. pushing particular lines. Uh, it is no, 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 no different uh, to see the digital media uh, pushing lines any more than it has been to see you know, newspapers for hundreds of years pushing editorial lines and, mm. and long may that continue as we have a free media in this country but it's slightly different isn't it i mean this is i would suggest this is perhaps an impact of brexit in that you know you are very much uh set up coming out of brexit a bit like if you like the what was it the new european mm. um as you say newspapers have always taken lines but you don't get the brexit daily mail i mean no man daily mail may be pro brexit and call itself that around that particular issue um you get sort of single issue uh, outlets is that fair to say and that's that's an impact that we haven't had before I mean if you look you know since the internet took off you have seen a preponderance of media websites with specialist interests and specialist markets in in a previous life I was co-editor of conservativehome.com sure. which was a website dedicated to following events going on mm. in conservative politics in the same way that Labour List and Lib Dem Voice do the same for, for their respective parties. You know, the, the, the beauty of the internet has been uh, almost a kind of democratisation of the media, that it has been you know, possible for, for new entrants to the market to, to arrive uh, with relatively low barriers to entry. Has Brexit supercharged that? Has Brexit had an impact on, on that? Because even if you talk about Conservative Home, obviously, you know, the Conservative Party is a broad church. <laughs> Heaven knows we know that. Whereas... Uh, you know, well, the Bre- New European well, or Brexit Central are, are focused on this I mean, one Bre- issue. Bre- Brexit is a very broad church too. True, yeah. Apart from the fact that, as I say, seventy percent of the public want the government to get on with doing it. You know, you look at the people who voted for Brexit, who come from every class, from every region, uh, of, of, of all kinds of demographics, and you know, you look at the people who write for Brexit Central. We have people from all political traditions and none mm-hmm. writing for us. It was our first birthday just last week, um, and. Amongst the the messages I had uh, marking this occasion uh, was a lovely message from James McGrory, who is executive director of Open Britain, which mm-hmm. is the campaign that was born out of the Remain campaign. Yeah, you know, James made it quite clear he he doesn't agree with that editorial <laughs> line one jot. Yes, but as a product, you know, bringing that, mm. you know, pulling that news together in one place, he said it's basically the uh, the the best product there is to to see what's happening on Brexit on any given day. So. No, we, we also have a broad readership as well as a, a, a broad uh, set of people writing for us too. Uh, should people trust you more than the BBC? I think that's for them to decide. What's the, what's the Brexit central model? Are you, you, you're free, so who's funding it? We were established, obviously, after the referendum by Matthew Elliott, who was the chief executive of sure. the Vote Leave campaign. He's our editor-at-large, uh, to give him his title. Uh, and he thought that there ought to be an outlet to keep people informed and up to date mm. of what was going on, you know, having voted in yep. unprecedented numbers for this mm. thing to happen, 
uh, to keep him informed of, of the process uh, of what was happening. So, you know, he uh, last summer after the referendum set about you know, raising money to ensure that uh, as a portal we could be set up and established to, to run during the course of the Brexit process. So, but what's the model? Is that did he get a big ton of money, which is paying out a nice little bit of interest to pay over his wages, or is it advertising, or just well, no? He's he, no, he has invited a, a large number of people to okay. contribute something towards uh, our running costs to ensure that we're there, fr- free to read each day. And okay. if if anyone wants to contribute, I'm happy to put them in touch with him. <laughs> and of course, he ran he ran business for Britain, so he, he knows uh, plenty of people with lots of money through that. I assume. There must be lots of businessmen in business we've written who've got cash and are sympathetic. There are all kinds of people who are sympathetic to our cause. Let's finish up with uh, the features. First feature is the best thing and worst thing. <coughs> best thing! Oh. Worst thing. Jonathan, what's going to be the best thing about Brexit? I think the best thing will be that the, the British people... Well, the British people will know who they can directly hold to account for stuff that happens in this country. N- never again will politicians be able to say, oh, well, we couldn't do anything about it, it was a European directive, blah, 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 blah. Uh, they, the politicians will not be able to wriggle out uh, of those things anymore. And uh, I think that that's a good thing. What's going to be the worst thing about Brexit? I, I'm going to be really selfish here and say the worst thing about Brexit is that once it's happened my job at Brexit Central will be done and I will need to find something else to do. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. In the unlikely event, this podcast has failed to prove sufficiently enlightening. Uh, What do you recommend to understand Brexit? It is a big, complicated thing. Uh, People want to understand it. There's no doubt there's an interest. Uh, Where should they go um, to, to understand it better? Books, films culture, people, whatever. What would you recommend? I mean, apart from the Brexit Central website yes. and the Brexit Central social <laughs> media feeds, obviously. Um, and UK in a changing Europe. The, the, thi- the, the book, actually, that I recommend people read, which I read uh, earlier this summer when, when it came out, was How to Lose a Referendum by Jason Farrell and Paul Goldsmith. Jason will be known to many listeners as a Sky News correspondent. Mm-hmm. And Paul Goldsmith is a history and politics teacher. And what they did together with that book, How to Lose a Referendum, was look at, basically went back to the foundations of the European coal and steel community back in the 50s okay. and uh, looked at moments during uh, the past 50 years as to why things turned out the way they did. And I certainly, from that book... Uh, I mean, you, know, you would say it reinforced the view that I already had, but I certainly, dare I say, it felt even more strongly as a result of it uh, why we were wrong to ever join uh, the European community as it was, because yeah. you just got the sense that you know, at every stage in the EU's life, uh, it's mission its vision that the long-term aim was always contrary to what most british people wanted to see you know the, the ever closer union mantra was there from from very early on and and say it's it, it's a super book which um you know obviously there's quite a lot of stuff about the referendum campaign mm. itself and, and the very recent history but i think that that historical context of understanding Know why we didn't join in the first place, 
and you know, the, the the kind mm. of positions of the various players and the various sides during the the, 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 the periods once we were in were actually quite enlightening the long view uh, as they call it um simon that sounds like a book you should have written yeah well there's <laughs> many long list of books i should have written I didn't. <laughs> uh, um what do you recommend i'm gonna twitter is is gonna come a really great space for debates um and there's that's an awful quite lot a, of that's quite a controversial statement. Is, I, I, I will then caveat it immediately by saying there's also a lot of rubbish uh, yes. out there. But there are some really great people uh, who are out there. I, I'm going to recommend two accounts, mm-hmm. partly because they're just on completely different sides. Uh, one is uh, Richard North, who's a, a long-standing Eurosceptic, has a lot of the long view, has a lot of the fine detail okay. to hand. Uh, and then on the uh, pro-EU side, and I'll, I'll phrase it deliberately like that, Andrew Duff, uh, former uh, Liberal Democrat uh, MEP, um, again, very knowledgeable about the details. So as two people on Twitter okay. who produce detailed comments, I, I'd recommend them. And since it's a podcast and people obviously like listening to podcasts if they got this far in the episode, yeah. I'm going to recommend the podcast that I've been doing since the referendum which is called a data Brussels, which you can find oh, at yes, adartofbrussels.com. Yes, yes. uh, you know, it's an interesting title because Brussels, of course, if you had a diet of Brussels, there would be a famous side effect that people think you get from eating too many Brussels. Indeed. And is that part of the uh, part of the pun that there's an awful lot of Pers- that side effects generated by yes. the Brexit debate? <laughs> <laughs> Simon Usherwood there proving that even the best brains of British academia are not above a fart joke. But I would echo his recommendation. Go and listen to A Diet of Brussels. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. You may have noticed uh, some weird buzzing in that podcast, to which I can only apologise. To be quite honest, I'm not quite sure where it came from. Somebody had a secret phone on, I suspect. And to be honest, could have been me. I can assure you that uh, I have checked all the other recordings I've done and they don't have buzzing so uh, you don't have to worry about that in future episodes. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff in uh, that podcast this week. Jonathan is obviously a big Brexit cheerleader and he says things are going to be great after Brexit. We've got a lot of Brexiteers lined up in the next few weeks and it really is fascinating to hear what they have to say about um, the process of winning the referendum and everything that's happened since It is, of course, entirely up to others to decide if Jonathan's characterisation of the UK's relationship with the EU before Brexit rings true. Uh, It's probably not up to me because I am a man who has just proposed creating a British larder. Uh, You really should have seen the way both Simon and Jonathan looked at me with that uh, suggestion. Although I have just realised that actually any millennials listening won't even know what a larder is it was um, it was an old russian car from the cold war there was lots of rub in the days in those days we used to have rubbish cars like uh, larders and skodas were rubbish in those days and yugos and fso's all from behind the iron curtain um but there is a serious point there i suppose that we can perhaps forget that there was a time when there was a cold war and obviously the eu was significantly smaller and um, its role in uh diffusing the cold war which I've got to via the process of rubbish cars, um, is perhaps one to consider. 
if you know of an expert who you think we should be speaking to about that or indeed about anything else for this podcast please get in touch also get in touch read the music it is still the requiem for a fish by the freak fandango orchestra um, nobody's complained so it's sticking around we're into week three now i think it might be coming permanent and i won't have to change it the ways to get in touch are on the email you can get me at uh, uk in a changing europe podcasts at gmail.com uh, probably better to try and get me via or easier shall i say to get me via twitter where i am at political yeti or to contact the team at the uk in a changing europe who are at uk and eu and their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. My website is james-miller.com, where you will find all my podcasts, all my articles, and all the recommendations. I'm collating all the recommendations from each podcast in uh, one document. So, um, yeah, it's quite an interesting list of stuff you can turn to to try and understand Brexit. Please do, that was, a, that was a really desperate please, but I mean it, please do like this podcast, subscribe to us, rate us, review us on iTunes, uh, it helps get us up the charts, gets us listened to by more people, and um, as and when we're on uh, Stitcher and Acast, and hopefully we'll be re- very soon, you may even be listening to this on Acast or Stitcher, uh, I will certainly report back when we are there. Um, we've also got a running order now, so I can tell you that in a couple of weeks, the next podcast will feature Gisela Stewart, ex-Labour MP and uh, chair of Vote Leave, who has some interesting stuff to say. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe, supported and funded by the Economic and Social Research Council and supported by King's College London. Uh, join me in a couple of weeks for that chat with Gisela Stewart. Thank you. <laughs>